Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Jim Grady and I'm here with Dr. Chris Keel from Armada Corporate Intelligence and he is the publisher of the flagship report. We always enjoy talking with Chris about what is happening and this is a terrific report that you can subscribe to for a whopping $7 a month. Chris, how often does it come out and welcome to the show? Thank you very much. It comes out three times a week, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we cleverly price this to be the same as a Starbucks caramel macchiato. So, I mean, all, all you really have to do is give up one of those a, a month, and and you're in and you're in good shape. So, I mean, it's 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 cheap. Well, it's inexpensive. I wouldn't call it cheap because there the information the information is terrific. I really enjoyed reading it. Very good. Very good. So, and for those who are not familiar with it, the idea behind the flagship is basically to sort of do a review of what's going on in the economy kind of on an as happens basis. You know, it's, it's reporting on the same stuff that you see in the national media, but with a little bit of a more global approach. And I've talked to you about this in the past. One of the challenges for people who are trying to consume news in the United States is that a lot of what we see is probably more infotainment than it is information. And this is one of the, the gaps, of course, that manufacturing talk radio fills, and we're trying to do the same thing. So we have a bit more of a global perspective in some respects. We get a lot of our data from the Germans and the Japanese and the British and the like, but we, we try to give people an idea of what's really happening, particularly as it applies to some of our core areas, which is manufacturing, construction, transportation. Um, I also do a lot of work with accountants. That's always very exciting. Um, so, <laughs> Well, Chris, I was just reading recently where there is some chatter about the next rate hike either mm -hmm. being tepid or a full basis point i don't know what to believe what's the yeah, story and, and and it's it's one of those things where you're kind of exposed to the thinking on both sides and it just leaves the average consumer of this information rather perplexed the fed is in the unenviable position as is all the central bank community of trying to do two things at once that are diametrically opposed to one another they are supposed to be controlling inflation, but they're also supposed to be growing the economy. So anything they do to control inflation will slow the economy. Anything they do to stimulate the economy makes inflation worse. So as they are determining things like a rate hike, they don't want to raise them so high, so fast that it plunges the economy into a recession. Nor do they want to let inflation have its head and become more of a problem down the road. The Fed was sort of expected to pivot based on some of the jobs data, and the jobs data came in very strong, which gave the Fed the impression that, okay, we're not nearly as close to a recession as some people would assert. That's been the other big news of the last couple of weeks. You've got a lot of people who are saying, we're in a recession, we're in a recession. The GDP numbers fell to negative for two quarters in a row. That's not a recession. Um, that is one of the indicators. The group that is responsible for declaring a recession is NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. 
they look at 26 different variables before they declare that a recession has taken place. They don't predict them, and they don't tell you when you're in the middle of them. They tell you when you've gotten out of it. You were in a recession, but they don't <laughs> let you know that until they've looked at all the different variables. And the variable that's actually more important than GDP growth is job growth. So when we add 500,000 people, as we did in the last jobs report, that ain't recession. When the unemployment rate is 3.5, that ain't recession. And so the Fed is basically saying, we're not as close as people would assert we are. We may have a little bit more play when it comes to raising rates. The presumptive tactic at this stage is maybe another three-quarter point increase in September, and then they take a break for a while. Thing for people to watch, and I know that your listeners are constantly watching things like the Jackson Hole Bank Symposium. I mean, that's just gripping, I mean, <laughs> under any circumstances. But every year, the Kansas City Federal Reserve sponsors the Jackson Hole Symposium. This is when all the central bankers of the world get together in Wyoming and talk about what their policies are. And you get everybody, the Fed, the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, whatever. The only ones that won't be there will be Bank of China and the Bank of Russia, for obvious reasons. But that's when they start to talk about what they should do. And at the end of that meeting, which is coming up in about a week, you'll have a very clear idea of where people's heads are. Because uh, right now, there's quite a bit of difference. Bank of Japan has not raised rates at all. The Fed has been a little more aggressive, European Central Bank kind of in the middle. How is Europe doing? I guess my sense of what I'm reading, and if it's correct or I'm correct, is that they are, they are in fact, in a recession. They are in more of a recession place than, than the U.S., but even there, it depends on where you're speaking, you know, because... Southern Europe is in better, is in worse shape rather than Northern Europe. Um, Germany is feeling the retail pinch a little bit more than France. Um, the UK is in worse shape than some of the Scandinavian states. So the challenge with Europe is always just remembering that it's over 30 different countries and they all have their own policies, they have their own central banks, they coordinate through the European Central Bank, but they're semi-independent. Europe is suffering the energy crisis more than we are. I mean, they're dependent on energy coming from somewhere else. They have been very reliant on Russia for years. Now they're diversifying and looking to get it from somewhere else. We're the world's biggest producer of oil. Um, we are by ourselves accounting for 15% of total global oil production. Russia's number two at about 13%. Saudis are about 12 percent number three europe is more vulnerable than we are um, we're going to be setting records in terms of oil production this coming year europe isn't you know they have to buy it from somewhere else and they are they're becoming more not enthusiastically engaged with players like libya you know they weren't buying from libya because libya is not really a country anymore it's just a collection of warlord tribes and the europeans are like Okay, you people are really, really hard to work with, and you're slaughtering each other right and left, but you have oil, don't you? <laughs> so. 
Chris, I, I see the unemployment rate at 3.5, 3.4, and I took some time to look back month by month from about 1940 through the present to watch the unemployment rate and recessions. And, and everyone was thinking that unemployment was a lagging indicator. I kind of thought it's a leading indicator in retrospect when you go look at it. Uh, but my question is, these 10 or 11 million open jobs, could this disguise a recession because rather than lay people off, they'll simply close out the job openings? Not really, because what you've seen on the employment side is we've actually recovered all of the jobs that we lost in 2020. So we're back to the level of employment we had when we got the COVID disaster. What really is kind of being masqueraded by the job numbers is that companies that would normally start laying people off or at least reducing their hiring are reluctant to do so because the labor shortage is so acute. They're like, well, yeah, I've seen demand decline. I should reduce my workforce, but I'll never hire those guys back and I'll never be able to find people to replace them. So if I lose them now, I won't have them when I need them. So I'm going to figure out a way to hang on to these people at least for a while and I'll cut someplace else. Um, so what we're seeing with, with the job market now is that companies are very, very reluctant to let their workers go. And if they see somebody that has the qualifications they want, they hire them anyway. I know several companies are like, no, we really don't have anything for Fred to do here. But Fred has these skills. And if we don't hire Fred, somebody else will. So, you know, Fred, um, find something to do. But when we start to grow, we need you. And so it's a little bit of a, of a strange circumstance. The main thing that's been driving the GDP numbers down has been the strong dollar. We rely on exports for about 15% of our GDP. We're not the most dependent by our long shot. I mean, Germans are 55% dependent on exports. But we are in kind of a unique position when it comes to what we export because we export expensive, high-level manufactured goods, airplanes, road building equipment, all that kind of stuff. The buyers are not uninterested in buying that. They still want that. But they look at the dollar strength and they're saying, well, sooner or later, the dollar will weaken a little and then those prices will be better. So we're not not going to buy it. We're just waiting. They're kind of like people who say, yeah, I want to buy something, but I'm going to wait for the after Christmas sale because the prices will be cheaper. And so a lot of our potential customers are just delaying. And that GDP drop when it came to exports accounted for a lot of that decline that we saw in the last couple of quarters that could reverse pretty quickly. The flip side is that the very, very strong dollar has made imports very cheap. And we would probably have more of a, of a core inflation problem were it not for the fact that imports are down. Chris, the... Uh... Russian invasion of Ukraine has kind of fallen off the nightly news infomercial. I, I would agree that that's about what we watch each night. Uh, but is it still having some ramifications to the U.S. economy? I know it's affecting Europe. Is it having any big ramifications for the U.S. economy? 
Yeah, it still has, and it hasn't fallen off the European radar. Um, our attention span is notoriously short. <laughs> but when you look at it in the great scheme of things, we don't border Ukraine. We don't have Ukrainian refugees streaming into the United States. We don't have a long historical relationship. The Europeans do. So it is still front page news in Germany. It's front page news in France and Italy and Britain, anywhere you think. That's still very much on their minds, if for no other reason that there's been three million Ukrainians moving into Europe trying to find shelter from this war. The impact on the U.S. has been predominantly when it comes to oil and gas. The market is global. So even though we produce most of our own, we're 7 million barrels a day short of being independent. We produce some 13 million barrels a day. We consume 20 million barrels a day. But most of whom we buy from is Canada, Mexico, not from the Middle East, and certainly not from Russia. But the pricing is international. So as long as there is a energy crisis revolving around Russia, that translates into higher energy prices for us. So the Europeans went from paying $25 per cubic foot of natural gas to $225 per foot. And that ends up creating a tremendous demand in Europe for LNG, which they're buying from us. So if you're a company in the US utility that was buying LNG, it's more expensive for you now, and you're looking for alternatives. We're seeing some of the utilities switching back to oil because it's actually cheaper than trying to run the natural gas because we're selling so much LNG. Diesel prices have gone up in the transportation sector because we are supplying Europe with diesel. Um, our amount of exports to Europe as far as diesel is up like 70%. I've also been curious in what I've heard, and I, I don't believe uh, much of what I read or hear these days, about natural gas and the United States having a shortage and uh, may have trouble producing natural gas. I thought we were the natural gas kings and queens of North America. We still are and of the world. We're the world's largest producer of natural gas. But because that demand has been extraordinarily high from Europe, we're shipping a lot more of it to them than we're keeping here. The LNG exports have been dramatic because they're, they have no options. They really have to rely on us to supply them for the time being. And you had a delay for a while when it came to investors, because the investors were saying there's not a lot of interest in fossil fuels now. Everybody is talking about the alternatives. It's going to be solar and wind and burning algae and hamsters on runways, whenever it is. I mean, it's just like it's time to bring back the hamster wheel. But now that there's clear proof that we're still going to be dependent on fossil fuels for a while, that investment is coming back. You're also seeing a lot more natural gas development around the world. One really interesting development, Gutter, which is a tiny little country in the Middle East, just closed a deal with ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Total out of France, ENI out of Italy, and Shell out of Britain to develop their natural gas field, and they will become the second largest natural gas producer in the world and are planning to use a lot of the money they make from that to enter precision manufacturing in a big way. They're saying, look, we can't, 
survive off of energy forever. But with all this extra money and the fact that precision manufacturing is robotic and automated, it doesn't matter that we have a small population. We have lots of money. I was talking to a colleague from Purdue that said the representative from Gutter showed up one day with his checkbook and said, I want to pay for 25 of my students to get a full ride tuition paid for the next five years and wrote the check for all 25 for five years. It's like, we're getting into this business. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, you just have, you have a lot of variability in the Middle East now, which you didn't used to have. I mean, what cracks me up is, you know, we think of the Middle East as, you know, the Saudis, conservatism and Wahhabi and all that. Tune in this fall for the Housewives of Dubai. If you want to see ostentatious spending, I saw a little clip of this already of some woman throwing an absolute hissy fit because she only had five Ferraris and her neighbor had six. <laughs> so they're suffering in gutter. <laughs> they're suffering and they're suffering in Dubai. You know, it's just, it is so hard to keep up. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid that my 14 year old Rev4 just doesn't cut it, you know? So <laughs> two things I want to cover with you. One is, can you share with our listeners where they can access the flagship report and get mm -hmm. their free month subscription so they can Absolutely. take it for a test drive? Absolutely. It's very, very easy. Um, all you have to do is go to our website, which is www.armada-intel.com. So that's A-R-M-A-D-A-Intel, I-N-T-E-L.com. And this is the bonus moment for listeners and watchers. Where did we come up with the name Armada? You have to understand that this company was founded 23 years ago in a bar. Um, my partner and I had had one too many beers and we decided that we could make a business out of this by God. And so we then had to name it. And there was a big picture of a ship over the bar. So we thought, let's call it Armada because, you know, who cares? We're going to be out of business in a week anyway. Um, so 23 years later, we're still the Armada, and as you can see behind me, I'm hoping that is not the Spanish Armada. Um, the <laughs> the joke that went around for ages was, why does the Spanish Navy have glass-bottom boats? So they can see the old Spanish Navy. So. <laughs> so walk us through an Armada report. Very what, good. You know, what's in it and what can we expect to read and if you hurry is, the one yeah. coming out tomorrow <laughs> exactly you can get one right away it is usually around seven or eight pages long the first two pages are what we call our quick shots or little global and domestic briefs so they're little one paragraph descriptions of something that has happened that day so one set is more domestic the next set is more global then we break into a little bit longer pieces where we talk about the domestic economy, the global economy, geopolitics. We get into the supply chain. My partner loves to cover kind of the natural disaster stuff, you know, the hurricane that's around the corner, just so you're aware of that. Lots of graphs and charts and basically just kind of a quick 
it's really designed to be, you know, read and toss. I mean, if you miss a day, don't worry about it. There's another one coming day after tomorrow, not supposed to be kind of collected for posterity. And, and we try to write to a very specific business oriented audience. You know, this, this is for the business manager who doesn't necessarily want chapter and verse about all the different economic permutations. It's like, what does it mean to me? How is it affecting me? And we take advice from readers. We have people write in periodically and say, hey, why don't you cover this? And we usually try to accommodate. So that's that's the orientation behind it. We also have another publication, which we work with you guys on, which is the Strategic Intelligence System, which is a more manufacturing-centered publication where we do a lot more forecasting, looking ahead. And frankly, some of those numbers are looking pretty interesting. One of the overall numbers are looking down before they start to recover in 23. Automotive is doing this. It is growing really fast. And so of all the sectors in the U.S. where you want to see aggressive growth, it would be automotive. It's a huge part of the U.S. GDP and a really nice counter to all the gloom and doom that we're seeing. That strategic intelligence system has been proving out to be about 96% accurate quarter over quarter. That's incredible. Well, interesting that automotive is growing. I don't think they've solved their chip problem yet. Your your GPS may be circa 1976, but at least it displays. And that's part of why it's, it's growing, because they're beginning to get their supply chain slightly under control. But because there's been such a gap for so long, the industry is in a very weird position of almost everything that's coming off the production line for the next year is pre-sold. The customers have already bought them, waiting for them to be delivered because they don't want to be left out when that car finally reaches the dealer. We work with a company that advises dealers and these dealers are like, we have two or 300 people who are making car payments and have been making car payments for a year and don't have the car because they just don't want to be the last person in line to get it when it finally shows up. So the auto industry is kind of like, well, we don't really have to worry about demand. Everything we're making has already been sold. Well, that's a novelty for them at this point. Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. Well, your report also has some nice bullet points in the uh, vertical third column that talks mm -hmm. about what's coming up, what's about to be released yep. to yep. give people a heads up. What kind of information is packed in there, Chris? Yeah, we try to put a, a little bit of a, of a heads up on the kind of data stream that comes out. There's an awful lot of material that comes cascading out of government and private sources every day. And it can be a little bewildering. So we try to sort of pick out those things that are going to be the most relevant to the majority of the of the business community. You know, when would we expect to see the inflation numbers come out? When do we think capacity utilization numbers are going to come out? When do we think the PMI is going to be released? What's it going to say? So you can kind of use that as a guide to say, oh, well, on Wednesday, there's going to be some numbers on production. And on Thursday, there's going to be some more information about dollar value. And then frequently, we'll try to write about those as they come out. So we know that it's coming on Friday. And then we tell you that, hey, it did indeed come. And this is what it said. 
Uh, I was fascinated to learn that you are a bit of a Russia aficionado. You went to college to study that and become a Russia aficionado. And I'm just curious how the Russian army is doing. I see they're calling up reserves. Uh, they're opening up to volunteers. They'll take pigeons if they can carry a hand grenade. Are, are they going to uh, survive this Ukrainian invasion? Yeah, they're, they're, they're struggling. And back in my misspent youth in the 80s, I was training to be a Soviet specialist. I got a degree in Soviet studies, learned Russian, lived in Leningrad for a year, was all set to study the evil empire and be a spook. And then they went out of business in the middle of my PhD. Gee, thanks. Um, so I had to kind of metamorphose into a little bit more normal economist. But now the Cold War is back and I'm relevant again. Um, so it's, it's very exciting. So what's wrong with the Russian army? It's what we have been observing for quite a while. It is a conscript army and it is not particularly efficient, has not been for a long time. And it's one of the dangers of being in a fundamentally corrupt country. One of the observations that was made early on, remember when they were talking about the Russian tanks were running out of fuel. And eventually we figured out why. It thought at the beginning was, well, they're just not very logistically oriented. They forgot to supply the tanks. Oh no, they were bringing fuel up, but the guys that were carrying the fuel were selling it to the Ukrainians. <laughs> and it's like, why are you selling the fuel for your tanks to the Ukrainians? Well, because they pay in dollars and euro instead of stinking ruble. But the Ukrainians are going to use this to attack your people. Those are not my people. Those are, tra those are tank people up on their tanks. They're so important. We're truck people. They don't shoot us. They just buy the stuff we're carrying. <laughs> really. You know, this was a country where when I was dealing with a petty bureaucrat at one point, and you expect people to be demanding bribes. But in Russia, he had his bribes on a cardstock laminated to just save time. <laughs> this is bribe for this. This is bribe for that. This I don't want to discuss. Those are the bribes. Okay. Um, so, you know, no muss, no fuss. Here's my bribe rate. Uh, there's been a lot of chatter about the russian air force and where is their air power i contend they poured their money into hypersonic weapons and they neither have the fuel nor the parts to fly a mig 29 these days is yeah, that they, all that they yeah they've got certain problems when it comes to supply but their biggest problem is personnel they don't have enough pilots you know, you've got, again, a conscript army, and these guys are drafted, and they are about as serious about the military as any other draftee. It's just like, I just want to get through my two years of service and get the heck out of here. Um, and you've had, you know, situations where the Russians would have been ordered to go someplace, and they're like, yet. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Don't don't want to be shot at. Um, just want to go home. Uh, and it's just there's a lot of aspects of that culture that have been seriously compromised. And and it's difficult to. I mean, just a story from way back when, when we were first kind of welcoming the old Soviet Union into the world as Russia. I, rem I live very close to Fort Leavenworth, which is the command and staff college for the United States military. And they had sponsored a meeting of the U.S. missile commanders and the old Soviet missile commanders so they could actually talk to one another and see how their experiences were. 
and we're at a bar and the Russian guy turns to the American guy and says, if there had been a war, would you have fired your missile? And the American says, well, yeah, I mean, not with any enthusiasm. I don't really want to be part of World War III, but that's my job. What about you? And the Russian says, are you kidding with our missiles straight up, straight back down? No way. Um, <laughs> so it's like, okay, a lot of faith in your military there. So. I'm curious because I look at the Russian GDP numbers, and it seems to me that all through the Cold War era and even today, we're having a, a standoff with uh, a country whose GDP is the equivalent of New York. It's not even New York. It's the equivalent of Indiana. Um, you know, <laughs> so so we're, we're at war with Indiana. Indiana. So... And that's always been the challenge. I mean, back during the Cold War days, they sunk all of their money into military preparedness. And, and anyone who visited in those days was just astonished at the horrible consumer goods that were available. You know, it's like in, even in Eastern Europe, which was a little bit further developed, I lived in, in Budapest for quite a while when I was doing some teaching there. And they put me up at the university apartments the washing machine <laughs> that was in the apartment could do one item of clothing at a time, one. So if you were going to do your laundry, first you do your underwear. Later in the day, you do your socks, maybe a t-shirt later. That's about all you can pull off in the course of a day. Um, and, and that was considered kind of state of the art. That was for the faculty. So the Russian cars were legendary. I mean, it was like, oh my God. So it's it's a country that it used to be referred to as a third world country with a first world military, but we're not all that convinced that it's a first world military anymore. No, I'm certainly not seeing a first world military at all with this Ukraine invasion. And it, they're kind of exposing their underbelly and putting themselves, I think, at considerable risk if they didn't have nukes. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the Trump card, but it's also a very hard Trump card to play. I mean, once you go that route, you kind of sealed your fate in a lot of respects. And it's just kind of a an example of how military strategy in general has changed. I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting very similarly to the way American troops are fought or trained now. It's special forces tactics. You know, it's not tanks slogging up against each other on an open field and massed armies. You know, it's kind of get in, hit, and run back. I mean, the Ukrainians are holding off the Russians because they're killing them from miles away using drones and missiles and all that kind of stuff. And all the Russia can think to do is to pound the cities into oblivion because... They don't know how else to fight that kind of tactic. What is happening around this nuclear plant? And I'm now hearing that uh, the Russians have planted uh, explosives in the plant. Mm -hmm. So if the Ukrainians try to take it over, they'll blow it up. Are we going to have another uh, Fukushima or Chernobyl? Yeah, well, that's been the concern because, you know, they fight around things like, and these plants are not all that well built to begin with. So... There is worry that you would get a leak or you would get some kind of, of disaster. Now, the impact would be localized. I mean, it was not like it's going to set the world on fire. But as Chernobyl 
melted down, it just basically turned a 20 square mile area into a no-go zone. And, and that would be what you would see if this kind of made it to that next stage. So there really is a lot of infrastructure damage being inflicted on both Russia and Ukraine through all of this. And the next big worry, because the Europeans looking down the road are saying at some point this ends, and if it ends in a way that we think is favorable and Ukraine survives in some form or another, we're going to have to rebuild them. And that's going to take a staggering amount of money, and we don't know where that's going to come from. So it's, it's right now, it's trying to figure out what to do with the conflict. Russia is of the opinion that Europe will blink first, but the Europeans are preparing much more quickly than the Russians give them credit for. They already have more gas in storage than they've ever had in their history. It's still not enough to get them through the winter, but it's getting close. And they've started making deals with countries they didn't used to deal with. I mean, the Russians were their support as far as gas is concerned. Well, the Europeans are now buying from Libya. They weren't going to because Libya is a mess, isn't really a country anymore. It's a collection of tribes. But the Europeans are saying, yes, we know you're savage tribes and you're killing each other, but you have gas, right? Um, so could could we buy some of that in between you're killing each other? So. <laughs> The sanctions that we put on Russia and that European uh, countries followed suit with, uh, is it really hurting Russia or is it just oh, yeah. political posture? No, it definitely is hurting Russia. Their their economy is probably set back at least 15, 20 years. The point is that, that they can take that kind of abuse because it's a tyranny. I mean, and democracy, you know, people are already complaining. How come my prices are high and, and all this sort of stuff, demanding that their politicians do something? Nobody in Russia is going to demand anything because that's going to get you shot or put in prison. But it's a country whose economy has has basically been isolated. Their banking system doesn't function anymore. Almost every Western country has pulled out of Russia. Um, there's no enthusiasm to develop there any further. Their unemployment rate is rising. And it's it's seriously crippled itself for the future. This was not something that was supposed to take this long. Russia miscalculated badly, so did we, when it comes right down to it. But in the end, we take a short-term hit. Russia is taking a really long-term hit. Well, it's like every other war. The generals will tell you we all go into a war with a perfect plan until the first skirmish. Yep. Absolutely. You know, it's like it's it is the is the mantra of the military is, you know, plan and adjust. Um, it just that's all you can do. Chris, as we wrap this up and we look uh, towards the end of the year, uh, what's your feel for the GDP going forward? And, and is it about September 28th going to come out with a negative number or are we going to pop back up positive? You know, I think we're probably going to see another couple of quarters of, of stress, whether we actually fall into the negative stage again, kind of is up to what happens to the dollar GDP connection and what's going on with exports. So we're going to see weakness. Fourth quarter may see a bit of a bounce back because retail begins to dominate. And if we have any kind of a decent retail season, which we might. 
as long as people are employed, as long as they have money still, and they do, uh, the savings rates are still relatively high, they will very likely spend it. We saw that this summer. I mean, even though we've been under a lot of stress economically, we still traveled. Airplanes have been full. The highways have been full. AAA has reported some of the busiest travel years they've seen in years. We're still spending money. And if we keep doing that through the holiday season, that will show up in fourth quarter. So we may be in for yet another kind of meager quarter, but then we start to see a turnaround towards the end of the year and certainly into next year. Well, I want to thank you for joining us and remind our listeners to go to armada-intel.com so that they can get their free month subscription to the flagship report and find out just how good it is. Chris, you do some terrific work and we really appreciate you sharing it with us. You're very welcome. And thanks to all those who read and send information to me. And by the way, one of the things we like about the flagship is that it's interactive. So please have a, you're invited to send me comments and howls of indignation, whatever seems to be the, your desire. And just know that I'm as I'm as, as verbose in print as I am in public. So, <laughs> well, Chris does love to write and speak. He speaks all over the country and parts of the world. So, again, Chris, thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You're welcome. Thanks. And we will post this show at jacketmediaco.com where we have all of our other podcasts. And we always appreciate all of our listeners. Thanks for being with us. We really enjoyed the discussion today on the flagship. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.